the joy of Why, hello there. My name is Brian Davis, and I'd like to welcome you to the joy of serious literature, the only podcast about the nebulous delights of literature recorded, at least today, in a basement woefully infested with centipedes. I can see one now, in the corner. Pray for me. There comes a point in every high school English class when the teacher decides, against all reason and judgment, to try and make their dim-witted students appreciate the beauty of poetry. There are all sorts of different ways this is done. Some teachers like to get up in front of their class and harangue their students about the genius of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Others force them to memorize systems of measured feet and methods for counting syllables. Some particularly foolish souls even try to convince their students that they already like poetry, because at the bottom of it aren't the Taylor Swift songs and little yachty lyrics they know by heart fundamentally poetry? My high school English teacher, back in my village of 300 people, was a man named Mr. Erickson. And Mr. Erickson, too, attempted to inculcate into us an appreciation for poetry. But he did it by steadfastly refusing to try and teach us anything. He stood up in front of the class, in fact, and declared that to his mind, it was impossible to teach anyone to appreciate a poem, that a poem was either a thing that you got or you didn't get, and no amount of work on his part could bridge that gap. Instead, the way that we were going to illuminate our minds to the power of poetry was by undertaking a particular project he had devised, the Poetry Project, he called it, which would require us to go out and explore the world of poetry for ourselves alone, without any guidance. He handed us this long list of 60 or 70 or maybe even 100 English language poets and told us to go out into the library and onto the internet and find one poem that we liked by 20 of the poets on that list. We were then to print out the poem and place it into a binder along with an essay we had written, no more than a page, maybe even only half a page, reflecting on the poem, what you felt it meant, what it was that drew you to the poem, what it was that made you like the poem. I can hardly remember any of the poems or poets I ended up sticking into that binder. I was still just a high school student. The project was just more work to be done. I found my poems, I read them, I appreciated them, I did my assignment and then forgot them. All except for one poem. It wasn't the poem I liked the most. It wasn't the poem that I found to be the most powerful, I don't think. But there was this one poem, even though I only read it once or twice while doing the project, that has stuck with me, that has repeated itself in my mind so often, for so long, that it has become a small but permanent fragment of who I am. That poem was a haiku by Richard Wright, haiku number 31. It goes like this. In the falling snow, a laughing boy holds out his palms until they are white. I have thought of that poem of its substance, of its image, at least twice a month for the past 12 years, a boy holding out his hands in the snow until they are white. The old Japanese masters might disagree with me on this, but to my mind, the miracle of the great haiku is how it can evoke so much in such a small quantity of language. And it does this through the way the haiku interacts with its context. First, the context in which it is written what it is that's happening around the poet, or what it is that's happening in the poet's life. The way, for example, that Kobayashi Isa wrote on the event of his daughter's death, this world of dew is only a world of dew. 
and yet, oh, and yet. And then again, in the way that we read a haiku, the way that we invent a context for the haiku, using our general knowledge of what it is to exist or our specific knowledge of what it was for that one particular person to exist. If I hadn't told you that Isa wrote that haiku after his daughter died, it wouldn't be a tenth as beautiful, would it? A tenth as vast an embodiment of the feeling of grief. For those of you who might be unaware, Richard Wright was a black man. He was not only a black man, he was America's first great black novelist. To say such a thing does a disservice to Zora Neale Hurston. But the thing about Zora Neale Hurston is that nobody read Zora Neale Hurston until the 1980s. But everyone read Richard Wright. The book they read by Richard Wright was a novel called Native Son. Published in 1940, Native Son was about a handful of days in the life of a young black man in Chicago named Bigger Thomas, who, through a series of unfortunate events, ends up sexually assaulting and accidentally killing his nice, white, rich, liberal employer's beautiful, young, communist, sympathizing daughter, and then burning her body in a furnace. An act which, in turn, sets off a colossal citywide manhunt where every police officer in America, it seems, descends on Chicago to find the monstrous, murderous bigger. See what he's doing there? At the time, when so many of the novels that had tried to tackle the racial crisis in America had lost themselves in muddled equivocation or boring sentimental arguments for how we ought to pity the poor Negro, Native Son was a stick of dynamite jammed into the mouth of American society. Bigger is a monster, but he's a monster manufactured by America's racial hierarchy. His violence, his cruelty, his callousness, his manipulation, the novel demonstrates with immense power, are not a threat to our society, but the direct product of our society. Bigger is not a reject of our society, he is a mirror of our society. Because of the power of this indictment, and probably because the novel was somewhat pornographic in its depictions of violence and sexuality, America was always America, Native Son became this nationwide runaway success. It becomes the first novel written by a black person to become a Book of the Month club book, and Wright's name is plastered all over the country as this blossoming black genius. From there, though, everything starts to go wrong in Wright's life. To simplify the life of a profoundly complicated man down to the point of caricature, Wright's problem was mostly that he couldn't get along with anyone. He has this utterly horrible, utterly typical childhood growing up in the Deep South in the 1910s. He lives in absolute poverty. His father abandons them. He develops a drinking problem at the age of like six. His mother gets sick and can't work. He's passed from relative to relative, one of which is a crazy religious fanatic. He only ever gets a modicum of an education. And Wright is only ever able to survive all of this, to rise above all of this and escape to the North and become this great American writer because he has from his very childhood this utterly unbending, utterly pathological will to be free and to excel. Nothing will limit him. Nothing will stop him. But that unbending will, the refusal to be anything but absolutely free and absolutely the master of his own destiny, doesn't just go away once he's made it. It is who he is, and so he chafes against anything and everything. He can't handle white literary society fawning over him because he wants to tear the roof off of American racism. But at the same time, he can't get along with the black intelligentsia because he marries two different white women and is an open and avowed communist. And then he can't get along with the communists because the communist party insists that he only write vapid political propaganda and obey their every order, no matter how much he may personally disagree with that order. 
For example, he won't sign off on saying Stalin is a good man, no matter how much they try to force him to do it. He can't even get along with the Pan-Africanist movement, of which he is one of the first great proponents, spending a great deal of time in Ghana with Kwame Nkrumah, because he keeps going around insisting to all the African delegates at the Pan-Africanist conferences that if they ever want to better their position in the world, they have to, in true Marxist style, abandon their backwards traditional cultures and modernize and industrialize immediately. Frustrated and alienated, in 1946, Wright packed up his family and moved to France because, he claimed, France was the only place he'd ever felt free. And for the rest of his life, France would remain his base of operations. But France is a cruel mistress. Once he got there, as much as his personal life seemed to improve for a moment, his literary life began to stagnate. In fact, it did something much worse than stagnate. It went into full-fledged decline. Once prolific, he started taking forever and ever to complete anything. And when he did complete things, he couldn't recapture the lightning of native sun. That is not to say he ceased to be able to write well entirely once he got to France. I think his haikus are proof enough of that. But he did become, it seems, incapable of writing anything that anyone liked. And I mean anyone. If you open up Robert Felger's laudatory book of Richard Wright, entitled Richard Wright, several times Felger lists off all the writing that Wright did after 1946 and says, except for a couple minor bits and pieces, that it's all, in the end, literary detritus that one can easily and safely ignore. And if you can't even get an academic who's devoted his life to studying you to take an interest in your last three novels, when you only ever wrote four novels, you're in deep trouble. Year by year, Richard Wright struggles more and more to get anything published. And when his work does get published, his works sell fewer and fewer copies. He's taken less and less seriously by the critics. By the mid-1950s, they even begin to turn on him with a considerable number of negative articles being published about his work one of which comes from James Baldwin, who Wright considered to be his protege and which Wright sees as this great betrayal. He starts having all these financial troubles. His wife insists on moving to England with the kids so she can attend graduate school, which splits him and his family up and puts an even greater financial strain on Wright, having to now maintain a home in both France and in England. He became convinced, and very possibly not wrongly convinced, that the United States government was organizing an international campaign to discredit him as an intellectual because of his communist sympathies and his pan-Africanist political involvement. Paranoia started to set in. He starts having all these weird health problems involving amoebas. By 1959, he's sick all the time. He's being forced to write ad copy for record sleeves just to make ends meet. Publishers are flat out turning away his work. By 1960, he's hardly even talking to people anymore. One of the few people he does talk to is this Danish woman who comes to him asking him to talk her out of killing herself. And he tries, he tries really hard, but in the end he fails and she kills herself anyway. His life has gone completely to hell. All of his hard work, all of his dreams of greatness and success have all turned, it seems, to nothing in his hands. And then, on November 28, 1960, he has a heart attack and dies. He was 52 years old. It was at the bottom of that hell, during the last year, year and a half of his life, that Richard Wright started writing haikus. He wrote supposedly more than 4,000 haikus, 800 of which he bundled into a book that he tried desperately to get published. But, like with so much that he wrote in those bleak days, no one would have it. It wasn't until many years after his death that they dug up his haikus from the archives and published them for the world to read. 
And if you read his haikus, it's hard to escape their pain. There are moments of great joy, of laughter, some good jokes. But at the same time, permeating each of them is the fact that Wright is dying. Wright doesn't know that he's dying, but he's dying. His spirit is going out of him. He's disintegrating. As he writes in his very first haiku, haiku number one, I am nobody. A red sinking autumn sun took my name away. The Richard Wright wrote haikus at all is a thing worth thinking about. Here he is in the most difficult part of a difficult life, and he chooses to express himself, not in the form that had done the most to win him his fame, the novel, or even the poetic forms of the Western literary tradition into which he was born. He doesn't, in the twilight of his life, choose to start cranking out villanelles or sonnets. He looks east. That he would choose to look east isn't entirely surprising, given the literary climate of the time. The late 1950s and early 1960s saw a huge boom in interest in Japanese literature. Translations of novels by Yasunari Kawabata, Asamo Datsai, and our dear friend Yukio Mishima were pouring into every Western nation. Dr. Suzuki was at the height of his fame, preaching Zen Buddhism out in California to a whole bevy of renegade American artists and intellectuals, most famously the Beats, who would write books of haikus of their own. Wright's choice wasn't exactly out of fashion. And part of that, perhaps, explains why Wright's haikus found such little attention during Wright's life. Oh, you have a book of haikus you want to publish? You and everyone else. But at the same time, it's a choice befitting the state of literal and spiritual exile he lived in his entire life. When you feel imprisoned or isolated by the world around you, there is a way that sometimes the easiest way to escape is to reach out and grasp onto some alien world, some alien culture, some alien way of thinking that matches, in some measure, the way that you feel like an alien. There's no way that you can possibly truly understand that alien cultural idea. But specifically because you don't understand it, there is a way that it can be fresh and clean, liberating instead of oppressing. Because of your ignorance and utter lack of concern for the substance of the tradition, you can hollow it out and make it a devoted vehicle for your own expression. There are people who might object to such a thing. There is at present in the halls of literature a great deal of talk about the morality of cultural appropriation. Is it acceptable to steal the ideas and theories and artistic systems of cultures and peoples of which you are neither a member nor a participant. But to my mind, that's just the prattling of old church ladies. In art, there is only one true measure of morality, and that's the Raskolnikov principle. It is perfectly fine to kill an old woman with an axe for her money, so long as with that money you become a Napoleon. It is perfectly fine to rob even the most beleaguered of people's cultural traditions so long as with them you make something striking and powerful. Fail at that, however. And, well, that's what the good Lord invented stoning for. Lucky for Wright, though, there is no question that he made something impressive. Let us read that haiku again. In the falling snow, a laughing boy holds out his palms until they are white. If you read the commentary offered by Yoshinubu Hakutani and Robert Tenner on this haiku, they'll hem and haw over the race of the boy in question. But to my mind, the boy must be a black boy. You don't write this poem if it isn't a black boy. You don't fixate on white if it isn't a black boy. Throughout the whole of his book of haikus, the two colors are constantly being cited, being alluded to, being pitted against each other. 
Black cats and white faces. Black railroad tracks and white sheets. Black lettering and white stucco. Richard Wright spent his entire life fighting first with his fists and his body, and then with novels and essays and poems, the power of racism in the world, the way in which the color of his skin inescapably defined and controlled everything he ever did, everything he ever tried to do. And yet there is that color, that thing that has defined the entirety of his experience, the entire shape of the nation of his birth, being painted over as if it were nothing, blackness erased, blackness annihilated by the falling snow. What that means exactly, I cannot say. I puzzled over it for more than a decade. Perhaps Wright wrote the poem because he himself couldn't tell. It was an epiphany, but it was an epiphany without clarity. Maybe the annihilation was liberation. Maybe to be free of blackness is to finally be truly free, to finally be able to live as Wright had always aspired to live, without restraint. Or maybe the annihilation was conquest, nature too joining into the war of erasure that it so often seemed almost the entire world was waging against people with black skin, a realization that maybe the god right and agnostic never really believed in, hated him after all for the color of his skin. And yet whatever annihilation it is that's happening on those palms, the boy knows nothing of it. He's laughing. He's innocent. He doesn't see it. Because he's French, because he's young, because he has not suffered like Wright has suffered, been besieged every instant of his life like Wright has been besieged. To the boy, it is all a game, all joyous. Perhaps there is a negation in that, a way that the boy's laughter renders for a moment the great problem, the great crisis of color, insignificant, arbitrary, a toy, a way that after Wright's entire life of struggle, the falling snow on that boy's hands rings out with a declaration that all of it was for nothing. Rings out, perhaps, like the final line of that poem by James Wright, lying in a hammock on Patrick Duffy's farm, where James Wright, lying in a hammock, looks up at the sky and the trees and the birds and then confesses triumphantly, I have wasted my life. Everything is nothing, and yet we are still alive. It is a marvelous thing to still be alive. There is snow, there is laughter, there are children. What is the institution of race in the face of that joy but dust? The beauty of Wright's haikus is that Wright is disintegrating, and yet he is also clinging to life with both hands. He will not be beaten. He will ultimately be beaten, because his heart gives out, but his spirit will not be beaten. Life, existing, will not become ugly. Writing will not become ugly. According to his daughter, Julia Wright, he would write dozens of haikus every day on pieces of paper and then hang them up on wires around his writing studio, like drying photographs. His strength was flagging, but what strength he had, he poured into this microscopic alien form with reckless abandon. In his book, Felger calls the haikus, like everything else, minor and beneath interest. And some of them are. Not every haiku Basho or Isa or Richard Wright wrote stirs the soul. But here, at least in this one haiku, Richard Wright, a man shattered like a jewel into a million pieces, was able to polish one of those shards so they could reflect the gleaming bewilderment of his existence. In the falling snow, a laughing boy holds out his palms until they are white. 
I said earlier in this episode that the glory of the haiku comes from context, from the world and life from which it is written, and the way we recreate that context when we read it. But there is also a third sort of context, the context of our own lives. What did I know about the black experience when I was a teenager, surfing through poems.com or whatever, looking for the shortest poems I could find to write about? Nothing. I knew Wright was a black man because the two-sentence biography that accompanied the text said he was a black man. But I had no idea whatsoever what it really meant to be a black person in America. I had hardly ever seen a black person outside of television, let alone had any sort of meaningful interaction with them. But more than that, I had lived my whole life in rural Pennsylvania. People in rural Pennsylvania did not tend to think very highly of African Americans and their contribution to human civilization. People told me my whole life growing up how black people, if they were not fundamentally inferior to white people, were practically inferior. How they did not work hard, how they were not intelligent, how they were drains on our society, how they were dragging down our society. How we would all be better off if every person with black skin were to vanish into thin air. When most everyone you know, your friends, your parents, your classmates, your family, the old men hanging around the hardware store, the people you overheard chatting on the street even, repeat to you those premises and arguments day after day. There is a way that their way of thinking burns itself into the folds of your mind. That's how racism perpetuates itself, not by persuasion, but by beating itself into you like a religion. You might not believe in it. I like to think that I never believed in it. But you could never forget it or escape it. All you would have to do was lay eyes on a black person, and those cruel voices would start ringing in your ear. The same way that every time you, let's say, have non-procreative intercourse, a nun or some berobed Calvinist might appear in the back of your mind to remind you to hate yourself a little more. And yet there was this haiku by Richard Wright. This haiku I just stumbled on by chance. There was that black boy's hands turning white in the snow. The thing about all those ways of thinking, at least as they manifested themselves into the society into which I was born, is that they're all predicated on a single thing, meanness. And to be mean to people requires that you remain ignorant of the people in question's humanity, that you never realize that they are alive the same way that you are alive. What that haiku does, even in a mind awash in ignorance, in a mind that knew nothing of right or his life or his work, is evoke some fragment of that humanity. It did not make me understand what it meant to be black in America. No one can ever be made to understand what it is to be black in America. But in those three lines, I gained some grasp of it, some encapsulated taste of it. In the falling snow, a laughing boy holds out his palms until they are white. In that haiku, without any more context than knowing that it was a poem written by a black man, is enough to draw out the sorrow of it, the fear of it, the fixation of it, the anxiety of it. If you read Native Son, that book is very much about how race is so all-permeating, its oppressions and power hierarchies and belittling slights so omnipresent that it cannot help but drive you insane. And here again, in that haiku, even the whiteness of snow cannot just be the whiteness of snow. There can be no freedom to just enjoy, no escape. Even nature is racialized. Even the color of snow is tagged with an asterisk. There is no returning to ignorance, the same as there is no returning to innocence. 
Once I had felt what I felt reading that haiku, I could not pretend that the people on the other end of that meanness that surrounded me didn't look out of their eyes the same way that I looked out of my eyes. All that bigotry still echoed in my mind, will always echo in my mind, I fear. But whenever those awful voices made an appearance, there was now that haiku. There was this voice of Richard Wright describing in five syllables and then seven syllables and then five more syllables, a laughing boy holding out his palms in the falling snow until they are white darkness and counter-darkness. It is one thing to know that a person is a human being, but it is another to feel that they're human. Things that you know to be true are easy to ignore, but things that you feel to be true, feel in your bones to be true, cannot be ignored. They haunt you, they bother you, they demand something from you. Science, political rhetoric, logic, they can all get you to that first part, but only a thing like literature, like poetry, only the attempt to articulate to one another in some measure what it is for them to exist can get you to that second part. That's why literature is so important. Thank you. This has been Episode 7 of The Joy of Serious Literature. As ever, I have been Bryant Davis, and I would really like to offer some special thanks this week to the Allegheny College Pelletier Library, who let me use one of their sound-insulated rooms to re-record a significant portion of this episode. You really helped me out. Yonder on the hill, Beatissima. I'd also like to apologize for the somewhat dramatic changes in the sound of my speaking voice in this episode. Due to a series of personal and technical difficulties, this episode was recorded on three different days in three different locations, and one time while I had a noticeable cold. Sorry about that. All right, enough hand-wringing. If you'd like to explore deeper into Richard Wright and his work, the obvious thing to do would be to read his book of haikus, the best edition of which is entitled Haikus, The Last Poems of Richard Wright, which is the book that Wright wanted to publish before his death with an added introduction by his daughter and a pretty comprehensive, if not always enlightening, commentary by the aforementioned Yoshinubu Hakutani and Robert Tenor. Beyond that, of course, I would strongly recommend reading Native Son, which I described at length in the episode, or perhaps even Black Boy, which I have not personally read, but which I understand to be a sort of hybrid autobiography, memoir, novel, dealing with his childhood in the Jim Crow South. Those generally are the two books people hold up as his masterworks. If you'd like to contact me with recommendations or requests or complaints, you can find me at vainlydrabsatan at gmail.com or on Twitter at vainlydrabsatan. It's an anagram of my name. I'd love to hear from you, especially on Twitter since I have, after a very long hiatus, Resume sporadically tweeting. If you ever wanted to see the social media equivalent of a floundering walrus, this is your chance. Catch you next time. Godspeed.